Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. And this podcast episode is kindly presented by MongoDB, the successor of the NoSQL movement. It's a very attractive, flexible, and simple database system that can be integrated in no time. They have a developer-first approach and build a system that is fun to use and scale to terabytes or petabytes. You don't have to think too much about your database structure. Just start playing with it and develop it on the go. I tried their new cloud product called MongoDB Atlas and all listeners of this podcast can easily do the same and test it in their favorite cloud, GCP, AWS, or Azure. Custom-tailored deployment without over-provisioning, sandbox for developers, organized in microservices, and clear focus on developer fun and quality. To keep it simple, DevOps with more dev and less ops. Just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started using their database as a service in the cloud. So today with me is my friend Tyler McMullen, CTO of Fastly. Tyler, maybe you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Tyler McMullen. Again, I'm the CTO of Fastly. It's an honor to have you here. Um, I think um, like whenever talking to, to other geeks, I'd, I'd like to learn more how they get into computing uh, their, sure. their geek path. Yeah. So maybe you could do me the favor and, and tell a bit more about your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Let's start with my childhood. Uh, so... I had, I had, maybe this isn't actually as weird as I, as I think it is, but, um, I'm not, I'm not sure. Did you have, um, game genies over here for the, like the, the original Nintendo system? Uh, NES? yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I had a, I had an NES when I was like five or six years old and, um, we got a game genie to go along with it. And I had been trying to figure out how the codes worked. And eventually, like someone explained to me that it was actually just modifying memory locations within the program. And suddenly, like to me, that was the first moment where I realized that like video games weren't magic and that it was something that like it was just a machine that one could manipulate and create and so on. And so that's really the thing that got me interested um, in computing back then. Okay. Okay. So you started with gaming as a lot of uh, yeah, geeks of these days do. Yeah. Yeah. Like you basic. <laughs> but you then like... Straight away got into programming or? Well, it was a couple of years later before I actually got into programming. And it was, it started with QBasic because it was the thing that was uh, on the computer that my parents had. And I could also find books on it at my local library um, and got from there into C. And then from there, I got my first, from there, I got my first job um, actually doing like, you know, very early web applications back in like 2001 or so. In which language? Perl or? Oh, it was in, uh, <laughs> it was actually in classic ASP. I was a Microsoft guy back then. ASP. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. <laughs> I, I actually also started with ASP or like used to do ASP years ago uh, in combination with Flash. Um, oh. Yeah. 
Okay. So, very bad time. <laughs> it's a rough time. <laughs> Don't for like everyone. to remember it. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you started, or you continue with different other languages, or like how how did it evolve? How? Yeah. From there, um, I actually got laid off of my first job. It was kind of like. It took a long time for the dot com bus to hit Pennsylvania on the other side of the uh, uh, other side of the continent from California, but when it did, like I, I got laid off, and so I started doing contract work um, and ended up using a bunch of Perl and PHP, and eventually that that led me to the Ruby world, and I did Ruby on Rails for like uh, quite a number of years. Ah, yeah. So we have quite a bit in common, yeah. Ah, good. <laughs> I was never laid off, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. also did Ruby. <laughs> but it's also not that that common in Germany to get laid off, as oh. we have a, like a very protective uh, work environment here. Sounds um, nice. Okay, um, <laughs> and uh, like when when did you then, or how did you continue? You, you studied IT, and then um, you, how did you guys meet? I mean, how did you come to Fastly where you are now? Oh, sure. I mean, you're a co-founder, right? Sure, sure. Um, I actually didn't study IT. I, I went straight, like I got my first programming job when I was in high school um, at like 16 and just never actually bothered to go to school after that. <laughs> and so, uh, which is how I can be 35 with almost 20 years of experience. Mm -hmm. um, but no, so uh, I ended up in California at one point working for another startup and I was actually sleeping on a friend's couch. Um, when I met, uh, the, the person who was like the, the primary founder of Fastly, Arthur Bergman, and we got to talking about it. Um, and he was telling me that he wanted to make something that was like a CDN, but, uh, was really more of an edge computing network. And that was exciting enough to me that I went and quit my job and joined him. Okay. And he's also, uh, as we say, techie or oh, very mean, much so. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a very tech driven company then. I think that's true. Like, you know, that, that obviously has like evolved quite a bit since we, since we first started, but like the first several people who were part of the company were all like pretty serious programmers. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and that's pretty much also your elevator pitch, I guess, or <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I guess the elevator pitch is a little bit different now, nowadays anyway, it's really more like, you know, Fastly is about, um, not just moving your content, but moving your uh, logic and your actual applications out to the edge of the network. Um, so Fastly is not just a CDN, but rather an edge cloud. Okay. And that's what you currently do as well, or is it um, somewhere in the future? No, that is, I would say that is what we currently do. That's what okay. we've been, you know, slowly evolving toward since we, since we started the company. And um, how can I imagine an edge cloud? I mean, you have data centers everywhere, I guess, or computers and data centers everywhere. Is it like big ones or like rather smaller ones? <laughs> How do, I mean, well, it really depends on where in the world we're talking about. Um, yeah. Our, you know, our, our pops, our points of presence are anywhere from like eight to, I think at this point, 128 servers in each location. There are, and they're like big beefy servers, right? So they can do quite a bit like terabits of traffic for some of them um, in theory anyway. Um, Okay, and where's, where's the next one? Where's, where's the next one? From we're, we're sitting in Berlin. Uh, where, where's, where's the next data center here? Do you know that? Uh, I'm pretty sure I can't say that. <laughs> you can't say that. Okay. I cannot say, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, um, then uh, that does mean that you're actually doing something like Amazon Lambda, then um, uh, running in a CDN, running in a in a varnish, as far as I know, like a like a forked varnish. Yeah. So the oh. way the way that I think about it is that. Um, With traditional clouds, you know, like, uh, well, you, you know, all the, all the clouds that are out there, we, 
they tend to be focused around like a, a centralized deployment model where typically you will deploy your application to one place and you might choose to deploy it to another place as well. Um, Fastly has a much more, what I would describe as like a serverless, almost like a data centerless sort of model to it, mm-hmm. where you don't need to necessarily care where your code is running. Basically, you provide the code, you provide the application that you want us to run. Um, we provide the primitives that it can be programmed against, and then we'll deploy it everywhere. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, so somehow compar- comparable to Lambda, uh, but just that it's not centralized. Um, I mean, with Lambda, you... I guess you know where your code is running in a particular data center which you pick um, and uh, at Fastly um, or maybe also other CDNs. I don't know. It's sure. working that way that um, that you deploy it everywhere. Um, that's that's the idea, yeah. Um, I'd say it's like... I would say that like the, the whole concept of the edge cloud definitely isn't like intended to replace the central cloud. Like they actually work in tandem. They work together really well. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we, mm-hmm. we actually work together with, uh, with GCP and, and AWS and so on pretty frequently. Um, okay. For, like, so the idea, the idea is basically not to put like compute heavy things, um, in your CDN, uh, but, but rather smaller tasks that need approval or something like that for deployment, for, for delivery or. Yeah, again, I think the way I, th- I think about this one is it's more like you would want to put the things at our edge that are valuable for them to be fast, right? So they are things that either, you know, either latency is extremely valuable for them or uh, resiliency is extremely valuable for them. Okay. Um, so like in a lot of cases, people um, or companies that, that, that use us can have their entire like central cloud go down or go away and their website will or their application will continue to function normally. Um, just like degraded slightly, right? Okay. So that's, that's the idea. Okay. So basically like having a local varnish, um, but uh, like really spinning that to the cloud and, uh, and not, not maintaining it yourself. I think that's also like a very important factor. Um, yeah, that's a big part of it. I think like, you know, it's and in our case, it's not just again, it's not just about like moving the content out there, but actually moving out like some of the logic as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the last time um, we spoke, I think at Oktoberfest, funny enough, um, Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, the edtech world is also like quite quite interesting, and it's an area I know quite well. Um, I, I was kind of surprised um, that you actually want to serve such purposes as well. And, and like, are you actually doing something in the edtech world as well, or is it like wh- what is your typical client? Yeah, I mean, I, I would hesitate to talk about like the use cases of any specific client, um, but we're, we're kind of all across the board. Like, ad tech is one of the things. Um, media companies are another big one for us. Um, and then e-commerce is like probably one of the, one of the biggest ones. They kind of see the value in, I think, I, th- I think the primary reason e-commerce ends up being such a big part of what we do is because they really see the value in having low latency, right? You know, you can actually measure the difference between 500 milliseconds and 250 milliseconds. Yeah. And they typically have a business model that is also, I think, a plus Probably helps, <laughs> for, <yeah. laughs> for paying for such a service. But um, Tyler, I think uh, one of the reasons why you grew so fast is um, uh, the, the fact that Google and others are actually pushing for web performance a lot. Uh, is that true? I think that is true. Um, that's something that we spend a lot of time working on as well. Um, you know, a lot of the people who work at Fastly, like that's really what their background is, is working on web performance in the past. And then You know, Fastly came along and they got the opportunity then to figure out like, oh, how, how can I apply all these things that I learned at previous companies to everyone instead? Okay. Um, and um, 
growing so fast um like just just saying that you actually went public um a year ago i think that's true uh may of last year okay and so it sounded first like a group of 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 geeks that just uh, <laughs> does, does things for fun yeah. uh, that doesn't sound like that anymore um so how how big is your team then Uh, well, so the company as a whole, uh, I don't have the specific numbers off the top of my head, but we're, we're north of 500 people at this point. Um, my team is, uh, is much smaller though. Uh, the, the office of the CTO is about 15 people. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, um, one, one thing I, I find of, find kind of interesting is, um, the, uh, The direction you're taking with WebAssembly um, yeah. and being part of the the Bytecode Foundation is it called like that? Bytecode Foundation. Bytecode Alliance. Bytecode Alliance. Um, you actually um, started that off with uh, a few other companies, um, Mozilla being being one of those. Yeah. Um, can you tell a bit more about what it actually is? Sure. I mean, uh, I, I guess I should actually explain like how it got started as well. So, um, you know, about three years ago, uh, we started. Well, I personally started working on a project to find a good way to take untrusted code, make it fast and be able to sandbox it um, with the whole idea that I really wanted to be able to do uh, what we refer to as like, you know, uh, some people refer to as like nano processes, other people refer to as like granular sandboxing. The whole idea is to have like very small, very fast, like ways of, you know, running untrusted code uh, in a shared way, right? So like a Docker container, but just smaller or... Kind of, yeah. It's like a dark container, but like much, much, much smaller. <laughs> Orders of magnitude smaller. Okay, okay. Um, and so when we got started working on this project, I, I went down a whole bunch of different paths trying to figure out a good way to do it. Um, eventually landed on WebAssembly. Um, and then we discovered that some folks at Mozilla had been working on a new compiler for WebAssembly that we thought we might be able to adapt to be run on the server instead. Um, so we started contributing to their code base and built some things around it. And then over time, that like uh, that relationship started to deepen, and we were, you know, now working with Intel and Red Hat as well on some projects. And so we decided that the right thing to do was to kind of turn it into an official thing. Okay, it sounds really like amazing for for a techie to to work on such things and work with such companies, right? Oh, uh, it was I mean, pretty great. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, and like, just get a bit closer. So Mozilla is working with WebAssembly. It doesn't mean that there's like actually a runtime being embedded in every browser um, these days, or yeah. So the the one that we've worked on together is still in the uh, the is in Firefox nightly right now. So it's not in the mainline Firefox yet. Um, but yeah. So the whole idea here is that. Um, rather than just having the WebAssembly runtime and compiler embedded within the JavaScript runtime and compiler, it kind of deserves to have its own thing because um, it has its own unique properties and like uh, opportunities for performance like optimization that JavaScript wouldn't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And does that then mean that um, there's like it's it's like a new version of Flash or ActiveX uh, built into the browser, <laughs> or like is it? <laughs> Is it not, at, not as bad as that? Oh, man. So, like, I've definitely gotten this question quite a few times. And, like, <laughs> I'm just happy you didn't go with Java applets. That would have, yeah. been, that would have been rough. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, you know, there, I can certainly see the similarities between the two. Um, the main difference is that the trust model is entirely, well, I'm going to go with better <laughs> for WebAssembly. Um, WebAssembly actually is, like, it's a very small very like uh, safe specification, like down to the point where it's like, it has tight proofs, it has small step and large step semantics now. Um, and 
just the entire way that it's built is meant to be like sandboxed very tightly. Um, and that's, that's kind of the big difference. One of the other really big differences is that if you look at something like ActiveX or Flash, they had access um, to quite a bit of the infrastructure in the browser, like by default. WebAssembly, like by default, actually has access to nothing, mm -hmm. right? So anything that it uses has to be provided by the outside system. And that's like, that's a very different place to start from. Than so it's, it's not able to access your hardware at all. It's not able to, to do anything with your computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But it's still bytecode. You as a user are not able to, to, to read. Um, and understand, or sure. I mean, is there some some decompiler or anything? I mean, I, can't, I really can't imagine. I mean, it's like a totally new world that so, is opening up there. Shockingly, there actually is. In um, I think it's in both Chrome and Firefox now. You can, if you load a WebAssembly module into the browser, it can actually decompile it for you and show you what it's doing. Interesting. So Google also adopted it. I believe. So. Oh, WebAssembly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. WebAssembly is actually in every major browser now. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's great. Is it? Yeah, but <laughs> does anyone use it? Like oh, right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like, uh, is it Google Maps, Google Earth? I can't remember exactly. A lot of like the, the applications that you're using are actually using WebAssembly, at least in like small components down underneath it quite a bit. Um, yeah, I would definitely say check, check out like the actual, like uh, the, the network thing and see, see what things are being loaded on major sites because there's a bunch of stuff being used now. And it doesn't mean that it's like a, like an applet embedded in a website. And um, <laughs> I would think it, I would think of it much more like it's just a different language than JavaScript, right? Okay, it's an intermediate representation that can be that can be targeted by a bunch of different languages, right? Okay. And to me, that's actually the most exciting part about WebAssembly. Like, I don't actually do a lot with WebAssembly in the browser. The thing that's exciting about WebAssembly is that it's like the first time we, as an industry, we as like a group, have kind of ever agreed upon a single intermediate language that can be used by like, you know, a bunch of different languages, right? Like that's, that's incredibly powerful if we can make it work well. So it's a bit like um, LLVM or something just in the browser, just very compact, um, maybe faster. Um, yeah, that's kind of the idea. I mean, it's not faster than LLVM in most cases, but like the whole idea is that like LLVM was meant to make it possible to, um, let's see, to, Take a program that is compiled to LLVM bytecode or um, LLVM bytecode, um, and then translate that into, uh, well, compile it into like for a bunch of different processors and platforms, right? Um, WebAssembly goes a little bit further and says, like, in addition to that, I'm also going to attempt to make it so that this thing can be sandboxed efficiently. So, like, WebAssembly makes a bunch of like fairly stringent requirements on the bytecode to be able to say, like. This is exactly the amount of memory that it's expecting to have access to. These are exactly the functions it's going to access. These are exactly the functions it's going to export, um, as well as like the ability to say uh, what's called a, or the ability to have what's called structured control flow. So basically what it means is that uh, there are no jumps. There's no go-tos inside of WebAssembly, right? So like it, everything is in the form of blocks, which means that it can be analyze to make sure that it's not doing anything that is unsafe mm -hmm. um, with control flow. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of the like lower level like attacks against uh, against programs these days use um, what's it called? Uh, what's called ROP, uh, ROP attacks. Uh, so return oriented programming. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you can find like little series of instructions and use them as widgets, you can jump around in a program and make different things happen. Mm -hmm. It's really weird and complex and like But the whole idea with WebAssembly is that it should actually be impossible if you are compiling the WebAssembly correctly to uh, to do anything like that. Okay. 
And which languages do you use them? I mean, to compile to WebAssembly then? Yeah, so the uh, probably the best one at the moment is Rust, um, which I'm a big fan of personally. But, um, you know, C and C++ also work really well. There's a, um, a subset of TypeScript called AssemblyScript that works well with it. Um, and a bunch of other languages are actually coming down the line as well. Goes, Go has, a, you know, a, Go's implementation is, is getting more mature at this point. And, you know, as we add more features to the WebAssembly spec, uh, we should be able to, like, put a whole bunch more languages on it as well. Oh, it's it's really like a geeky thing, right? It's, oh, it's yeah. really really deep, and uh, <laughs> I guess like barely no web developer knows about that, right? That I mean, it's just being being pushed out to the market, and nobody knows it. Uh, is it is it true, or well, am I just yes and no? It's, am I just a late adopter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're a late adopter. I think that not everyone needs to know about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, we want everybody to know about it, but like. Much in the same way that if Intel changes like the opcodes available on your processor, you probably don't care much about that, right? It doesn't come up in your like day-to-day -day, like work life. Um, WebAssembly is kind of one of those things that uh, I think if it goes well, we'll actually end up just behind the scenes a lot of the time. You basically adopted that to to your CDN, so you basically built like an an engine, a WebAssembly engine into your <laughs> into your CDN into Varnish, or well, not into Varnish, but it is uh, it is built into our platform. Uh, Yeah, so it's an unusual one. So like all the browsers work uh, by doing just-in-time compilation of WebAssembly. Uh, our realization was that we could do ahead-of-time compilation of WebAssembly and make it even faster for our use case. So we have uh, essentially like a, a compilation cluster that will turn WebAssembly into native code. But that native code, see the easiest way to explain this, the native code that it produces, like it's compiled, you know, objects, That normally comes out of a compiler, but along with that comes a, a contract of sorts. So you have this all this like this this native code, as well as some information about like what the environment has to look like in order for you to be able to run this code safely, right? And so it'll say, oh, you know, this sandbox has to be at least this large, and it has to um, export only these functions and import only those functions, right? And so as long as the runtime, which is separate from the compiler, um, can fulfill all of the requirements of the contract, um, we can basically say that like it is safe for it to be able to run this program. Okay, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, do you have any concrete examples or use cases for, for, for WebAssembly in your tooling in the, in the real, real world? I mean, is it yeah, paid yeah. content or what is like the typical use case for? Sure, no, I think one of the, one of the best like pretty straightforward use cases that people have is, uh, is, is GraphQL, right? Um, which, you know, GraphQL is obviously like growing quite a bit, but one of the things that people are often asking about is, um, you know, do they have the ability to serve GraphQL content um, and cache the individual components of it at the edge, right? So mm -hmm. rather than saying like, oh, I'm gonna, excuse me, um, I'm actually going to have, you know, I'm gonna cache the, the, the final product instead, You could send her, like the user sends a request in. We actually fan that request out to a bunch of different backends, pull all that information in, cache all that information, and then pick out the individual pieces that were actually needed to resolve the GraphQL query. Right? So you have one uh, content piece like articles or products, and you say you want, just want to cache that individual product data type inside um, a GraphQL API. Right. So kind of like that. Um, I guess what I'm thinking more is like you might say, uh, I would like article number one, 
Well, but we could actually just grab all the articles. So then we'll just go grab all the articles, cache all the articles, and then the next time someone comes along and says, I want article two, we actually already have all of the articles there, right? And so it should make it a lot more efficient to resolve a lot of those uh, GraphQL queries. That's the idea. Interesting, interesting. I mean, you if you if you're not in touch with with CDN these days, you you barely know that uh, <laughs> this, this can be done. I mean, yeah, interesting, but also really geeky. <laughs> Very geeky. Sorry, that's that's the way I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I also guess that um, coming to technology and leadership, this is how how your team is structured, or are there a lot of like deep geeks that uh, like to play with with their work or like how does it look like well so that's interesting um so uh my my team is the office of the cto i only have about 15 people on my team and it kind of a it's a strange diverse group of human beings um we refer to ourselves like the way that we talk about what we do frequently is that we say that we um we watch the things that are we look over sorry we oversee the things that are overlooked okay right um, and so that can mean a whole bunch of different things. Like we have people who are very good at like network protocols, um, like some of the authors of like Quick and HTTP three and and so on, like work on my team. Um, and so you know, so we spend a lot of time looking at um, network metrics and so on that uh, that might be overlooked otherwise. So small things that are happening on the network that could be indicative of larger problems, for instance. But that's just like one half of the like, you know, overseeing the things that are overlooked. The other half is kind of looking forward, right? Like where is the rest of the industry going or where could we, you know, drive the industry toward as well? And so this is, I think that the WebAssembly stuff that I'm talking about is, is one big aspect of that. Like that's something that we think is going to be really big in a couple of years. Um, and so we're trying to get ahead of the game on that. Okay. So I know, imagine like a big room. Uh, with a black wall and a large TV screen at the end, uh, <laughs> where you see like a 3D globe uh, visualizing all the world's traffic. Is that true? <laughs> well, <laughs> and like a lot of people standing in front of it. And um, I was like, oh, is that a security thing? Or is there yeah. what, what is happening in India? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's more virtual than that. My, my okay. team is actually spread across the world. We have people uh, all the way from Melbourne. Um, over to Paris as well, uh, and including one here in Berlin as well. Ah, interesting. So you are like a true remote first company or? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say that's true. Some of our very first employees were remote. I think we are over 50% remote at this point. So it's something very much built into our culture. Ah, cool. And um, how do you then like organize your meetings? Is it, are you using like a certain tool, tool chain or um, like how do you manage to uh, treat everyone with the same. Is there is there like a thing you do to, to be really remote friendly? We try to, yeah. So basically, every meeting at Fastly uh, includes includes a um, includes a video call link along with it. Typically, like if there are remote people, we try to all be remote for that thing. Um, doesn't always work, right? Because we do have offices in some locations. But um, but yeah, like it's just it's to me, it's really just about flexibility and like you know, making sure that people who are remote actually feel as if they're part of the team. And so we just make sure to talk a lot. Okay. And you also sometimes work from home and stuff like that, or in oh, different, yeah. different locations to, to make sure that everyone's aligned and that it's working for everyone the same. Well, you are talking to me in Berlin right now. So yes, I, <laughs> <laughs> we definitely get around. <laughs> okay. So at Fastly, how do you do leadership? How what kind of processes do you have? Do you have any processes in the in the office of the CTO, or like how does it work? Do you do you have OKRs? Um, I mean, as a public company, 
there must be goals and so on. Oh, and how, how does it work? Yeah. So the company as a whole obviously has like quite a bit of structure and process around it these days and also a lot of like strategic planning. Um, the office of the CTO is a little bit different. Like we do have strategy, um, but whereas like most groups, most, um, most departments think about strategy in terms of like a year or two, we look at our strategy more as like three to five, six years long in the future, right? Um, so the whole goal with that is for us to like to continue to, you know, rather than focusing on what's happening right now, focus on what we think is going to be happening down the line. So everything that we work on tends to be longer term. Um, and so that's how we do it. Um, as for like specific processes, OKRs and whatever, yeah. um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad at those sorts of things. I'm not really a process forward sort of guy. Yeah. <laughs> We kind of, uh, you know, strategy via chaos. It's great. But, but I mean, how do you then implement something like WebAssembly in your servers? Is there some, some way of, I don't know, doing experiments or like, how do you test yeah, if a thing will work for a client or not? Yeah. So that's, that is actually the thing that we, that we spend a lot of time on in the office of the CTO is, is, is experiment, what I refer to as experiments and incubation, right? So um, I think one of the things that makes us different from what a typical like research group in a company might do is that rather than doing a bunch of research and then handing off our like findings to the rest of engineering, instead what we do is we actually incubate teams within the group. Um, so the team working on WebAssembly, for instance, started with just me and then I hired one other person and the team started like growing from there. It's now like at least six, six or more people working on the project, just, just the core of the project together. Um, and so that team has been spending the last like two and a half years working together inside the office of the CTO. And so at some point here, we will actually move them out into the rest of engineering. So rather than incubating a project, we try to incubate teams instead. Okay, interesting. Uh, but that, then you're really taking big bets at the end, right? I mean, you're, you're like steering towards uh, WebAssembly yeah. and uh, you know that the market will accept, accept it or mm -hmm. are you, you just bet on it? Well, so I think that we spent a lot of time trying to like mitigate risk along the way. Yeah. Right. Um, there were definitely some periods in there in which we thought, well, maybe this isn't going to work. Um, that said, what we ended up, where we ended up going with it, um, was basically like evaluating frequently along the way to go like, is this going to work? Well, mm -hmm. what if we make these changes? Well, what if we partner with these people? Well, what if we, um, instead of, you know, building on top of this platform, what if we build the platform ourselves? Okay. Um, and so like the entire way along, we're like, you know, evaluating to make sure that we are not taking on too much risk, um, especially not taking on too much risk um, while, while growing the team, right? So before you grow the team, before you finish incubating the team, you got to make sure that it's actually going to work. Okay. So you, I guess you work then closely together with a lot of like the most important clients or ex like clients that, that like to experiment um, and, and talk to you or how does it work then? We talk quite a bit to our clients okay. um, along the way to make sure that what we're building will actually work for them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting. And do you then, you basically also like kind of a CPO then, right? Um, is, that, <laughs> is that true or is there, is there any product person um, who overlooks all of the, the activities you do? Um, I would say that we, we, we kind of partner with products, whereas engineering, like, the, I guess the way that I think about it is engineering is kind of downstream from product. Product mm -hmm. kind of says, like, here are the things that we would like to, to work on, the things that we would like to build over the next year. Um, I look at the office of the CTO as kind of an input to products, right? So we have our experiments, we have our incubations, 
And then we go here, product, take a look. Like this is what we have like discovered over the past couple of years. How can we build this into the roadmap? Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah. And what are, what are your core technologies? I mean, we spoke about varnish. It's, I guess, C-based um, as far as I know, or is it like, it's, it, it sounds really low level. <laughs> varnish is C-based. It is very low level. It is, it is quite, quite a beast of a project. Um, we've, we've done quite a lot to it to like make it work at, uh, at our scale uh, and work efficiently. But the way we're moving um, now is actually like away from C and toward Rust, um, which I think has been a big shift. And like, I've been very happy to see that, you know, even, even the people who were uh, very, uh, very long-term C programmers have really gotten behind it as well. Um, and the, the big reason for that is that like we, Rust is kind of the first language that we've seen that actually combines like the efficiency, the performance, the like the low level nature of C with uh, the ability to make it safe, right? Um, so like a strong type system and strong memory safety and so on. So like once you actually like wrap your head around Rust, it's a pretty amazing language. I will admit though that like the learning curve for it is um, a bit of a challenge. Okay, okay. And how many people at Fastly actually know Rust and know how to, <laughs> to write Rust? Is it... I'm not sure how many, I'm not sure I could count off the top of my head how many people, but it's quite a few at this point. Okay. 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 I mean, it's really like gaining a lot of traction as far as I see. Um, yeah. But um, I, I've just heard that it's like very, very hard to learn and um, like got like a rather uh, like group of uh, like really geeky people around it uh, <laughs> that, that drive it forward. That is true. Uh, it definitely helps when you already have a bunch of people who can do it. Um, they will definitely help to like, you know, train others up to, to make it work pretty well. Okay. Okay. And um, one question we like briefly touched before, how yeah. does your server park look like? I mean, how many servers do you actually have? Is it more like mainframe computers uh, that <laughs> are based in, I don't know, t uh, like one place in, in Germany, for example, or are there like certain data centers? Are there thousands of computers? How does it, how does it look like? Yeah. So th there's a bunch of strategy that goes into how we do this part of our business. Um, a lot of it is really based around like, so, well, there's, there's several different things, right? So one of it, one of the factors is um, population centers, right? So we try to target areas that uh, have large numbers of human beings who like to use the internet. Um, but then it's not just about where there's population centers. It's also about like where our customers um, actually do business, right? Um, and so, you know, early on that basically meant we were talking about like Western Europe and parts of the United States, right? Um, and of course, over time that has changed quite a bit. And now we're, um, you know, much more global at this point. We're in, you know, Australia and New Zealand, all across Europe, we're in India, we're in Singapore and, um, you know, down in South Africa and South America and just all over the place at this point. Um, as for as for what our our points of presence, our data centers actually look like, um, again, like these kind of range anywhere from like eight to uh, 128 nodes, depending on just how many, uh, how, how much traffic there is in that area. It's actually pretty easy for us to upgrade those, add more servers and so on. But um, the data centers themselves are actually like shockingly simple. And that's something we spent a lot of work on to make sure that like what we were building was going to be, you know, straightforward to deploy and not complex to debug. Um, so our, our data centers at this point are effectively just um, a handful of switches and a whole bunch of servers. And that's about it. That's really all that's in there. And the servers are basically uh, built at your company or like, <laughs> how does it work? 
So the servers that we use, uh, yeah, they're definitely custom built, um, but they are using all commodity hardware. It's it's nothing that is like too crazy, um, but they're they're powerful machines. Okay, interesting. So uh, you're not part of that um, Facebook uh, Open Hardware Alliance or something like that, or is it? Not just yet, no. Not just yet, okay. <laughs> so it sounds like a quite impressive job, um, like having to handle all the hardware stuff and software stuff and like sure. really going uh, like down deep level um, everywhere. Um, right. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting about it is that if you look at the way that a lot of companies that have large uh, physical like footprints like we do work, the there tends to be like a really strong separation between the hardware and the software teams. And that's something that we've really strived to avoid at our team, at our, at, at Fastly. So um, one of the advantages of that is that, you know, the people who are working on like the, the infrastructural software for this actually understand like what our data centers look like and how the data centers work, which ends up meaning that they can build software that actually takes advantage of that. So I think we've talked publicly about um, some of the software that we've written that runs on the switches themselves, right? So rather than having load balancers and routers and all sorts of other physical devices in our data centers, um, we do almost all of that in software, either on the, on the server or on the switch. Okay. Um, and On the servers, do you have something like Kubernetes or anything to, to like, uh, like arrange it all, or is it just too much overhead? So that's a it's a really interesting question because like we 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 talked about doing this sort of thing in the past, but what we have always landed on is that it's not actually necessary for our use case um, because ultimately what we want is for every server to be identical. So it doesn't really matter. Like, so we don't really need a thing that decides what's going to run on the servers because the answer is the same thing as everywhere else. Okay. Um, and so, so a server boots up and just downloads an image from somewhere and um, that just runs it or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> um, so, um, Tyler, um, one small surprise I have here. So, um, uh -oh. we thought till now that this device on the table is uh, an audio recording device. It's not. It's a time machine um, I got from Sergey oh, no. Brin, and uh, we now travel back in time uh, to your first day at Fastly, and you have a chance to <laughs> whisper something into young Tyler's ears. What is it? Oh, man. There's so much I would want to whisper into my own ears. So many, <laughs> so many mistakes made. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think probably the first thing I would whisper to myself was, would be, don't be afraid of process. Um, You know, I came, I came into, uh, you know, my, my role with the perspective of someone who had been an engineer for, you know, 10, 12 years at that point. And so I was, you know, still afraid of things like, well, like you were mentioning OKRs and managers and all those sorts of things that, uh, that are always scary when you're a young person. Um, now I've kind of come to realize just how important those sorts of things are in, you know, actually developing a, a growing company, right? Like, and I, I, that's definitely one of those things where I wish I had like adapted to that a little bit earlier. It would have made life easier for me at least. Okay. Yeah. I understand that, that fear and uh, the, the wish to just uh, sit in front of a computer oh, with of boxer shorts on and just code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, never goes away, does it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it never does. Yeah. Um, Okay, um, so do you then sometimes still code? I guess so. Yes, right. I do occasionally. Um, it really depends on like what 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 the yeah, what projects are actually going on at that point. It's been a little bit of time since I was uh, actually writing much code, but I am hoping to get back to it pretty soon. 
Okay, very good. So you implement your next uh, incubation project and then uh, you, you can code again, right? That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. So, um, Tyler, thanks a lot for the interview um, and uh, thanks for actually being here in Berlin. Uh, it's an honor to talk to you and um, looking forward to the next uh, to the next occasion then. Hey, I'm really looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to our sponsored MongoDB. To try the new cloud product of MongoDB called MongoDB Atlas, just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started for free.